wrote to them and he said, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, should we just sin it up all the more to get the most amount of, of grace out of Christ's death on the cross? And the answer is very clear, by no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? If you're one who doesn't mind writing in your Bible, you might underline the words, live in it. Because we do continue to sin, we are still imperfect people. Our sins are washed clean. We're justified as if we had no sins. We'll stand before God one day, pure and clean and sinless. But even once we're born again into Christ, we still sin. But we don't live in it. Live in it. Do you not know, he says, he asks the question, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we will believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, shall never will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, not his, ours, once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's one of the most beautiful things, I think, about a repentant believer allowing someone else to baptize him or her. God gives us a watery grave And it's a demonstration to everyone around us that we believe in the Easter story, that we believe that that Jesus really did die on that cross, and that he was buried, and that he rose again. And when a person is fully immersed, whether it is in a, a swimming pool or a pond or a church baptistry or a river or a creek, when they stand there, They are standing there saying, I am dying to my old self. Oh, sure, I'll still have the same physical appearance. I'll still have memories. I'll still have the same struggles. But I'm not going to live in that anymore. And when a preacher or a parent or a youth coach or someone takes a hold of them and puts them under the water, that is a symbol of Christ being buried in the grave and how he rose from the grave Fortunately, you're not under the water for three days, (laughs) maybe three seconds, if that. And you come back up out of that water, and it is a beautiful picture of new life, alive in Christ. Someone has said that as a Christian, we're not sinless, but we should be sinning less and less and less. (laughs) A customer asked a sales lady one time in a clothing store uh, what the tag meant when it said (laughs) shrink-resistant. Very honestly, the employee said, well, it means it'll shrink, but it don't want to. (laughs) Even after we're made new in Christ, we do still sin. Someone has explained it this way. We continue to sin, but we don't have it on our day timers or our Google calendars. (laughs) We don't plan to sin. 
We're not okay with it. It breaks our hearts. Just like the old Christian song, does he still feel the nails every time I sin? The cost of our forgiveness of our sins cost Jesus his life. And it came with great suffering. Uh, when you think of the scourging, the, the whippings that, that he went through, the crown of thorns on his head, the pain of being nailed to a tree, the, the shame and the anguish, the weight of all of our collective sins put on one person, a person who himself knew no sin, meaning he had never, ever sinned. He left the perfection of heaven and he came to earth and he dwelled among us for 33 years and died on the cross for you and for me and it was our sins. And it was so ugly that God the Father looked away. And Jesus, reciting that prophecy, says, you know, you know, why have you forsaken me? Why have you looked away? God the Father could not even look on all of our sins that were on Jesus when he went to the cross. So when we think of the seriousness of our sin. It should break our hearts. It should make us sick to our stomachs, and we should want to be different. But that's a good message. This isn't a hellfire and brimstone kind of message. This is a good kind of a message. We should want something better for our lives. We should want godly lives. We should strive for righteousness. We should hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. We should seek to be holy, to be different from the world. Our neighbors, our co-workers, our extended family, they should all know that we are Christians. Ever had anybody walk up to you and ask you, are you a Christian? You just, I could just tell that you were. <laughs> now, that can seem a little bit almost new age-ish, but there is a certain way in which we can, you can just kind of sense that a person is filled with the, the joy of the Lord and the same Holy Spirit that you have. Those who are made alive in Christ resemble their Maker. We resemble our maker. The, the term Christian, uh, the, the church in Antioch there in the book of Acts, we learned that's the first time that, that, that Christians were called Christians for the first time. Before that, they were called the way, capital T, capital W, and it was thought of as some sort of a, a cult early on. But when Christians took on the name Christians, Christians doesn't just mean I'm a good person. You ask somebody if they're a Christian, yeah, I try to live a good life. No, 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 no. I mean, do you belong to Christ? That's what I mean by Christian. I'm not asking whether or not you're, you know, if we graded on a curve, you would be better than, than, than the average kind of person. I'm asking, do you belong to Christ? And it literally means little Christ. You're Jesus' mini-me, if you will. Are you a little Christ? And when you think about what it takes to be a little Christ, uh, when you think about what that looks like in your thoughts, in your words, in your actions, and in the things that you, you do when it's not necessarily what would bring you the most happiness. <laughs> you could have immediate pleasure, but you turn your back on it because you don't belong to the world. You don't even belong to you. Because when you're born again into Christ, you've died to the old self. How can you live in it any longer? And you belong to Jesus. So in our text today, 
We're going to see how this unmistaken identity of the Christian, this trait of ours, if somebody were to describe you, and they were describing you as a Christian, the unmistaken identity about you, one of the marks of you, undeniable marks of you as a Christian is that you are alive. You're full of life. You're alive in Christ. First Peter chapter 2, verse 1 tells us about the prep work. <clears throat> in fact, it gives us a list, and here's what it says. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. I call it the get rid of list. <laughs> Today, the, the outline as I kind of structured it, at least on Monday, kind of put, put my thoughts together. It's kind of like getting ready to do um, a do-it-yourself project. You know how you kind of, whether it's a recipe that you're following. Your recipe always, recipes always tell you what you're going to need what the grocery list should look like. And uh, today's you know, electronic grocery list, you can actually download the grocery list so that when you go to the store, you know, and, and, and stores you know, buy advertising on those, on those programs so that you know, they could give you coupons. Hey, buy this buttermilk at Kroger's and get 75 cents off. But whether it's a, a recipe or you're doing something through a project at Lowe's and you're building something in your home, this is kind of the format in which you go. If you want to be alive in Christ, we're going, to, we're going to hear this here in a few minutes, but you are a work in progress, right? You are a building project of the Lord's. We have that, that imagery here in this passage. The first thing is the get rid of list. This is the prep work that you need to do, kind of like raising an old building, demoing something, a, de- a demolishing of something to get it ready. You can't start building something new till you get rid of the old, and you tear it out, and you pull it out, and you cleanse, cleanse it away. The first thing that we're told to get rid of is hatred. Hatred. Malice is the word that uh, uh, most translations, certainly mine, uses the word malice. But I don't use malice a lot in my everyday conversations, but I do use the word hatred. <laughs> I hear somebody say, I hate him, <laughs> or I hate her. Hatred. I found several synonyms for malice and landed on hatred, but there are a couple of other ones I really liked were the words meanness and nastiness. <laughs> I almost chose nastiness. Get rid of nastiness. Hatred's a great word to describe malice because there seems to be so much hatred in the world right now, doesn't there? And it seems like all of the quick fixes and the psycho stuff, psychoanalysis uh, and everything that people kind of come up with to try to make us a, a nicer, friendlier society, none of that seems to be working, and people continue to get nastier and nastier and nastier, and more and more hateful. And everybody seems to have these groups that they dislike to the point of where they hate them, they loathe them. So much hatred in the world. Good riddance, perhaps, is is an expression that we have when we finally get rid of somebody we don't like and eradicate them from our lives. It literally means evil or wickedness and conveys the idea of wishing someone else harm. Boy, that is wicked, isn't it? To have an enemy, an adversary, somebody you don't like, maybe that doesn't like you, Somebody that you hate, somebody that you have malice towards, somebody that you're nasty or mean toward, and they to you, perhaps. Are there people in your life that maybe when you hear they're sick, you're glad they are? Or when they have problems in their work and their business fails, do you feel a certain amount of 
joy in your heart. Are you glad, perhaps, when you hear somebody's leaving your church or moving out of the area? Good riddance. <laughs> Hatred. It's been attached to Nancy Astor and Winston Churchill, but it was probably as common as the late 1800s, this expression. But supposedly Nancy Astor said to Winston Churchill, who she didn't get along with very well, if you were my husband, I'd poison your tea. To which he responded, Lady Astor, if I were your husband, I'd drink it. (laughs) That's hatred. Jesus demonstrated hatred for no one. In fact, he says, in your anger, do not sin. He doesn't say anger is a sin. We see him get angry at the right time and the right way and for the right reasons. But we never see him hating anyone. Perhaps his strongest disdain that he shows in, in the Gospels is toward people who were being mean to people, who were def- uh, defense, uh, defenseless or weak. People who were using their religious leadership positions to make life hard on others just trying to worship their God. Remember when he went into the temple and he was cracking the whip and he was overturning the money tables and so forth? That whole, that whole thing uh, was because people who couldn't afford to buy their worship supplies were being charged a, a huge amount so that they couldn't afford even the basic of sacrificial uh, animals to come in and, and uh, be able to sacrifice. And so Jesus said, you'll not turn my father's house into a den of thieves. And he overturns the, uh, overturns the money tables and, and he's angry. But he's not hateful. If, he had, uh, if it had to be a, a challenge, I would think, for Jesus at times, though, because he could know the hearts and the thoughts of, and true intentions of others and still manage to love them. Can you imagine? I think, really, if you think about it, in, in Scripture, Jesus seems to be the most graceful toward the people that are, the, that are being mean to him than he is toward people that are being mean to others, <laughs> In Luke 23, 24, Jesus said of the Roman soldiers charged with the task of crucifying him to the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Wow. Can you pray to God the Father and ask him to forgive your whoever that person is in your life, that coworker that got your promotion, um, the person that beat you out of the athletic uh, contest at, at school that... that you know they cheated. You know it was unfair. You know, can you say, Father, forgive them, knowing that He loves them like He loves you? If we're going to die to our old selves and come alive in Christ, then hatred is something that has to go, and so does fakeness. Fakeness, phoniness. The word deceit means to trick others in order to mislead them. One of the really good qualities, I think, of today's uh, millennials is that they have a true appreciation for authenticity. They love to just keep it real, right? I even had a young person this week thank me for being honest, just being myself, you know, being who I am. It's interesting to look back at commercials from 20 to 30 years ago and see like no one on television was just being themselves. You know, that commercial, that, uh, you know, that advertiser would go on there and they would be using uh, their advertising voice. Hello, try my new toothpaste. Why, it will wash away everything. And when I see an old commercial like that, I always want to say, use your real voice. <laughs> who, who are you trying to be? Because you know they didn't talk, about that, talk that way around the house, right? Hello, wife. How are you today? I hope you have a wonderful day at work. 
<laughs> no, they didn't talk that way at home. But yet, in public, they, there was this, this announcer voice that they would slip into. Be real. Be authentic. Hypocrisy. Well, that's a timeless one that... Uh, that can certainly turn away most people from wanting to follow Jesus. There are a couple of things about hypocrisy, though. I would encourage you to never use hypocrisy as an excuse to not strive for holiness. Some people will say, I don't go to church because I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to serve in that position because I don't want to be a hypocrite. Then, then maybe there's some things you need to cut out of your life. You need to make some changes. You need to strive to be more holy and more like Jesus and, and, more, and have a more righteous walk because God has not called you to just say, well, at least I'm not a hypocrite. No, you need to, you need to repent of those things and start acting like a Christ follower. Never use it as an excuse to, not, to strive to not be holy. And never use someone else's hypocrisy as an excuse for your own actions. I don't go to church because there are too many hypocrites in the church, people will say. Somebody, somebody said, well, come on in. There's always room for one more. <laughs> You've heard me say it many times. In fact, it came up in our growth group earlier, but I've always kind of, I call it reverse hypocrisy. You know, the church is not a haven for the perfect. It's a hospital for the, you know, for the broken, for the imperfect people. We're here today because we know that we are sinners saved by grace, and we need to be here. It's like sick people going to a hospital. We are sinners saved by grace, so we gather here on Sunday mornings and we encourage one another and we're reminded of God's Word and we pray for one another and we hold one another accountable because we know we don't have it all together. The person who's on the outside refusing to come in because they're not a perfect person, that's the true hypocrisy because they, they're acting like they got it all together. And, and, and a church is a place where we, where we know about our sins and we know that we are accepted by the Lord. And we need to take of that communion every Sunday, reminding us of his broken body and shed blood and our salvation. On the get rid of list is, is the word envy. This is a plural noun that depicts an ongoing attitude of feeling like everyone else has it better off than you do. I kind of think of that wallowing in self-pity kind of thing. Imagine an early Christian reading this and realizing that they're like, oh, I wish I was as smart as so-and-so and could, could read the, the Hebrew text of the Old Testament better than I too would have been better. But, you know, I'm not as good as so-and-so. Or if I had a spouse like he has or like she has, then, then maybe I'd be, I'd be better at this whole Christian thing. And finally, on the get rid of list is the word slander. This is another word that I think is extremely relevant today. It kind of ties in with that very first one on hatred. Um, we call it character defamation or vilification, but the strategy in politics, social media, the neighborhood cul-de-sac for it, perhaps, and in some churches is to demonize anyone who's different than us in order to make us look better. Done any demonizing on social media lately? looking for bad in someone else. It's, it's human nature, but it's not God nature. It's what the world does, but it's not what the church should do. So as we move along with our building project, we've, we've demoed, we've gotten rid of the bad stuff, the get rid of list. The next thing is the needed material. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 through 3 says, Like newborn infants long for the pure milk, spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is 
good. Philippians 3, verses 12 through 16, Paul says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have already made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if any. If in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Paul didn't consider himself as having attained it. What one thing he did, forgetting what lies behind, he pressed on toward that gold. He wanted to win that prize. Are you pressing on? Are you longing for the pure spiritual milk? Ever seen a, seen a hungry baby ready, ready to eat? just wanting that pure milk so much. And when they finally get it, they have this, this wonderful look. They are so satiated because they have longed for it. What we need is the pure spiritual milk. To long for the pure spiritual milk means not just to want it, but to passionately long for it with all your being. Is that the kind of passion that you have for spiritual milk? the Word of God, the filling of His Holy Spirit, the fellowship of His people. I would commend you for being here today. I would commend this church as a body for the way that you have hung in there during this incredibly difficult year, staying connected. Even when we had to do the online services, you stayed connected. When you look at our offerings, you've been so faithful in your giving to the Lord and in your tithes and your sacrifices to Him. When we were able to reconvene, we had 180 people here. It was an amazing thing. And even today's attendance here in July, during one of the heaviest vacation weeks of the year, there are a great number of people here. I commend you because you are demonstrating that the pure spiritual milk is something that you don't only like, but you long for it. You want the Word of God. You strive for more of it. We have a percentage of our worship attendance attending our growth group hour like no other church. I mean, it it is amazing. I can remember hearing one time, like back shortly around Bible college, right after going to seminary days, that like, you know, the average of, of Sunday school attendance to worship attendance was like maybe 22%. And here at Dover, we're always nipping the 60% mark. A couple of weeks ago, we had 84 people in growth group. It's just amazing. And that's for every age, too, of people saying, I don't just want and like. It'd be kind of nice to have some pure spiritual milk. But you long for it, and you are determined to have it. And here's why we need it. This is another one of those Hina verses in the Bible. The word hena is the Greek word for so that, so that you may grow in your salvation. Ever bought clothing for your kids a size or two too big on purpose? Because you knew they would grow into it, right? I, I, a couple of examples there. When, when our daughter was baptized uh, a few years back at uh, Kingsway Christian Church. They had shirts, our say, made new. Uh, theirs say, alive. And, um, and I remember McKenna could not wait to have her alive t-shirt. And we purposely got it a little bit large for her because we wanted her to be able to wear it beyond that, that uh, winter and on into the next spring and summer. And she wore it for a couple of years because we, 
we got one big enough for her to grow into. I took our son Lincoln on a father-son adventure to Chicago with nothing but backpacks on a train. It was the week going into his fifth birthday. And we had such a great time. We went to the Lincoln Park Zoo, and I bought him a shirt in the gift shop. had a monkey on it, said Lincoln Park Zoo on it. And I got it so big, it came between his knees and his ankles. <laughs> it was huge. We got caught in a, a huge thunderstorm on our way back to the train station. And I found out that when you're in a huge city like Chicago, it's kind of like uh, trying to follow smoke, you know, and it always looks closer than it is. And I'm like, oh, we'll just walk to the train station, and it's right up this way. I could see the skyscrapers, you know. Six miles later, <laughs> through a heavy thunderstorm, I arrived with an energetic little boy who had spent most of that time asleep on my shoulders, but was no longer asleep. <laughs> he was wet, and he was all over the place. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to get that souvenir shirt out, and I'm going to put it on him. And I remember seeing that shirt, like I said, came all the way down. He wore that shirt for like three or four years because he had room to grow into it. Here's the cool thing. When you are born again into Jesus Christ, when you get saved, you're born into, your, you, you're born into that salvation. There's no sort of saved or almost saved or really saved. There's no different levels or degrees of being saved. And once, you're, once you have your salvation, I mean, you know, it's, it's given to you as a gift and you're saved in that very moment when you're born again into Christ. But like a newborn babe, you've got a ways to go to grow into it to develop that righteousness, to follow Christ obediently, to allow the work of His Holy Spirit in you, and and to constantly be learning from His Word and, and always trying to digest it and longing for that pure spiritual milk so that you can grow into that salvation. And believe me, we all have room to grow. And whether you became a Christian at 9 years old or 29 years old or 59 years old or you're a senior citizen and you've been a Christian for two years, you've got a ways to go to grow in into your salvation. And we need to work at that by longing for the pure milk of the Word. The plan. Uh, we've done the demo work there, and, uh, and we've, uh, we've done the prep work, and we've got the needed material, this pure spiritual work, uh, pure spiritual milk. And now it's time to look at the plan. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 says, As you come to him... A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The true sanctuary is your heart, not a building, not bricks and mortar. You are, you are the building. I am the building. We are the building materials. We are part of the plan. And Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. And that chief cornerstone is so important because everything else is built in relation to that chief cornerstone. And as God is building us up into this royal priesthood of all believers, it's so important that we follow the plan and that we, we always look to Jesus as we're being built up because it's who we are in him. As you come to him, it says, as you come to him, as we come into the salvation, accepted by God, a work in progress, and a worshiping heart. A worshiping heart. Jesus supersedes even the Old Testament. The the worship of the Gentiles all around Peter's uh, readers were worshiping lifeless stone images that could not worship God and could not receive worship. But you, he says, you are living stones 
You are living stones. You're not like these lifeless stones all around you that you see in all this pagan worship is what he's saying. You're not like all of those. You are a living stone. You're not bricks and mortar. If we can bring it into the United States of America in 2020, you're not a fancy building with a steeple on the top of it. You are the living stones. There's an expression. We've all heard it. We've all probably said it. Two words. A lot of times it's in sports. A coach might say it. Look alive. Anybody ever said to you, hold on now, look alive. <laughs> look alive, church. Look alive. It's imperative that we look alive, especially during this pandemic in 2020 when around us there's all kinds of uncertainty. And for the first time of this entire year, you know, I'm starting to get a little concerned. I don't know which way this thing's going, and I don't know what the fall and the winter looks like. And I am getting weary of this whole COVID-19. And I don't want to ever hear the word social distancing again. (laughs) I'm so tired of it. Are you tired of it? And all God's people said, amen. Thanks for being real. (laughs) (laughs) but it's so important that we look alive that we look like the church that we look like the chief cornerstone jesus through all of it and no matter what we go through and no matter what's coming (laughs) a cliche just came to my mind i don't know what the future holds but i know who holds the future but that's true isn't it we know who holds the future that part we know all right We'll wrap this up. The finished product. So we've eradicated all that needed raised and demolished, and we got the right material, pure spiritual work. We've looked at the plan. Here's the finished product. First Peter 2, verses 6 through 8 says, For it's, it stands in Scripture... Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do so. Don't stumble. Obey the pure milk of God's Word. That's the standard that never changes. 2,000 years we've had this New Testament, this holy Bible that we cling to. And centuries before us, generations before us, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, your great-great-grandparents, they, they perhaps they lived by this Word, and it is unchanging, and it's still relevant today, and it's still what we who are alive in Christ need to look to. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Chapter 11 has that huge hall of fame, the the faith hall of fame, by faith so-and-so, by faith so-and-so. Since we have this huge crowd of witnesses, let us lay also aside every weight and the sin which clings so easily. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Most of the people in this room have found their salvation. You want it perfected? It gets perfected in Jesus. 
So long for the pure milk of the food. Let's do that together. Let's hold one another accountable. Let's help each other run that race. And when one of us falls behind, and we will, let's reach back and grab him or her, our buddy behind us, and let's help each other as we strive to keep the faith no matter what comes as we, as we march on and we look forward to 2021. <laughs> Pray with me. Father God, I thank you for your amazing love. I thank you for Jesus, God. Lord, that you made the first step, that you initiated this relationship with us, that God, for those of us who have been born again into him, that have had our sins washed away, God, I thank you so much for the salvation that we enjoy. Now, please help us to grow into it, to grow up into it. Father, thank you for your Holy Spirit that you've put within us, for your Holy Word, your Holy Spirit-inspired Word. God, we are without excuse if we fall behind because of you. So God, help us. Help us to look alive to be alive in you. God, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.